Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's turn this morning to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, our text this morning. The title of the message, The Power of the Spirit. Now, last Sunday we saw and examined the passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 1, where Jesus, after his baptism, went out into the wilderness to pray and to fast for 40 days, where he was confronted and tempted by Satan. And just as these children that you saw a moment ago have been equipped to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Jesus parried and thwarted the onslaught of Satan's temptation using the Word of God. This morning we're going to be privy to an episode on Jesus' life where he taught and preached the Word of God. Luke chapter 4 verses 14 through 30. Let's read. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. And they heard these things and got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now we need to understand that the Gospel of Luke was not written in chronological sequence. It was written in thematic sequence. And so as you put together the other three Gospels together with Luke, we get a fuller picture of the chronology of the life of Jesus, which would tell us that Jesus had already been ministering for about a year by the time of the action of Luke chapter 4 here, beginning in verse 14. He had been teaching and he had been healing. He had turned the water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And all those stories and his fame came back to the ears of his hometown, the city of Nazareth. You remember that Jesus, of course, was born in the little Judean village of Bethlehem. 
as was predicted in the Old Testament. God orchestrated events, even using the wicked Roman emperors to decree that all of their subjects had to go back to their hometown to be registered for taxation, which brought David, excuse me, which brought uh, Joseph and Mary to the city of David, Bethlehem, where Jesus was born in fulfillment of prophecy. And to flee the murderous King Herod, his parents escaped down to Egypt with Jesus. But after Herod's death, they came back to their hometown, the little Galilean village, obscure as it was, of Nazareth. That's why we call Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, as we just sang in the hymn a moment ago. And so, get the picture. Jesus comes not only to his home region of Galilee, there were about 200 villages in Galilee, of which Nazareth was a very small one, but he also comes to his hometown of Nazareth, and I would take it his home synagogue. Now, a synagogue is a Jewish house of worship, and the things that went on in a synagogue on a typical Sabbath day would look in some ways very similar to what we do here. Uh, they had a person who was in charge of setting up the order of the service, and then there was a person who was in charge of the scrolls. And that attendant of the scrolls was very important because, as you know, in those days the printing press had yet to be invented. And so there were very few copies of the scrolls because they had to be hand printed, and they were very rare and valuable. And so they were kept locked up in a special place. And when it came time to read the scripture publicly, there was great pomp and ceremony and they brought the scrolls up. And whoever was speaking that day was giving the honor of reading that day's scripture reading, of course, from the Old Testament because there was no New Testament yet. And so Jesus had been invited as a traveling teacher or rabbi to come back to his home synagogue and to read the scripture and to teach. And he took that opportunity as we're about to see. But you get the picture. These people were not strangers. These people were not outsiders. These were people that Jesus knew and grew up with and loved and probably some of them were his relatives. And there in the synagogue they would have corporate times of instruction. Through the week they would teach the children the Old Testament law. And so again very similar uh, to our churches today. But there's three points of the scripture that I want to make from the scripture I just read. Number one is this, when a person is filled with the power of the Spirit, as Jesus was, it gives clarity to one's calling. Look at verse 1 here in chapter 4. We pointed out last week that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And no matter what you've been taught of what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit, it simply means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. That is, Jesus was submissive to the will of the Father and the Holy Spirit on a moment-by-moment Day by day, decision by decision basis. He always and ever did the will of the Father, the Scripture says. And if a person is always submitting to the Spirit, always doing the will of the Father, that person will have the power of the Spirit living and working through them. And so verse 14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now we have a great privilege here in our church being located in close proximity to one of the largest seminaries in the world. We have a lot of young men and women who uh, come through our church who are training to go out and to serve in local churches. In fact, we have uh, had the privilege over the years to train up young men and send them out. And they're now, uh, we counted up the other day, pastoring churches in 14 different states. And what a blessing that is. Many of you have got to know them through the years. But every one of those young men that come through this program, I tell the same thing over and over every week when we meet. And that is this. If someone asks you to preach... 
The answer is always yes, because you never know when you're gonna get another opportunity. And so these men have learned to take those opportunities. Well, Jesus said yes to the invitation that the synagogue ruler, and that's what they called him in those days, gave to him to preach. And the text before him was Isaiah chapter 61, which everyone in the room recognized instantly as a messianic prophecy. You have to understand that the book of Isaiah was written 800 years before this moment in time, and it predicted with great detail who the Messiah would be and what he would be like. And Jesus comes and he reads this text, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now this is Isaiah who wrote it, but he's speaking in the voice of the coming Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable ear of the Lord. Those are the four primary purposes of the Messiah. Number one, to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, the people of Jesus' day and really those before them made the classic mistake that we talked about people make today concerning Jesus. They often interpreted his words only in the sphere of the physical. And quite often he was teaching in the sphere of the spiritual. And so when Jesus said that he came, the Messiah would come to open blind eyes and speak a good word to the poor and release the captives and the oppressed, what they heard is that when Messiah comes, he's going to physically overthrow our enemies, in this case, the Romans. And he's gonna establish an earthly kingdom and we're all gonna eat that, uh, drink that free bubble up, right? And that's what they were looking forward to. But Jesus, of course, was speaking in spiritual terms. Now, Jesus, of course, was compassionate to the poor and to the needy and to the handicapped. And he, he did some great miracles in that vein. But that's not his primary purpose. Jesus said his primary purpose was to seek and save the lost. And he was speaking to a group of lost people, though they didn't understand that. Now, this is a mistake that some people still make today in the name of Christianity. They read verses like this and they say, well, the gospel must be giving a cup of cold water to the poor in Jesus' name, or feeding the hungry, or clothing the naked, or visiting the orphan, or prisoners. And those are all admirable things. We're enjoining the scripture to do all of those things. They're very worthy things. I encourage all of you to do them. Those are not the gospel. If we give a cup of cold water or even food and housing to the poor and don't tell them about a savior who died for them, we fall short of the gospel. And here's Jesus declaring to them their own need. See, they were blind to the fact that they were the ones, the very people he grew up with. These are the people Isaiah was referring to who are spiritually impoverished and spiritually blind and spiritually imprisoned. Jesus was speaking of those who were unable to ascertain or perceive in the spiritual realm because they were locked into the physical. He was talking about people who were really spiritually dead and needed to be regenerated or born again. He was speaking to people who were locked up in their own sinfulness and they didn't even recognize it, but they were about to. And so that leads me to my second point. When we are full of the Spirit 
and we're walking in the power of the Spirit, it will give boldness to one's character. See, Jesus knew who he was. He was the Messiah. He declared it very clearly when he read those verses and said, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your very hearing. But please note that there is a world of difference between boldness and pride. Sometimes when people hear clear exposition of scripture, they perceive it to be pride in the speaker because there's a confidence when you know you're speaking the words of God. And we should never, hear me very closely, we should never as Christians intimidate or offend a lost person out of personal pride. Pride is a sin. It's a very terrible sin. In fact, it is the root cause of all sin, the scripture says. But it is okay to be confident as a Christian. Not only is it okay, it's part of the job description. Because confidence comes from knowing that all of this is because of your heavenly father and that he's in control and that nothing happens outside of his will. And, and so that leads to confidence that some people perceive as, as pride. Now the Bible is clear that on a personal level, Jesus was meek and humble of heart. But there were times when he did some very bold things. In fact, he was consumed by zeal for his father's good name. Do you remember when he chased the money changers out of the temple? One man took on probably dozens, if not hundreds, with nothing but a little piece of leather in his hand. And they got out of the way because they knew he meant business. He was bold. He spoke truth to power. He stood there right in front of the Roman governor Pilate and didn't flinch. He confronted the religious leaders, the Pharisees, reserving his harshest rebukes for them, calling them blind leaders of the blind. And even in death, he died with dignity and boldness. As Isaiah predicted, as a lamb to the slaughter, he uttered not a word. But it was not pride that emboldened Jesus. It was confidence that he was doing the will of the Father. Now you mark this. When you know as a Christian that you are exactly where God wants you to be. When you know that you are doing what God wants you to do and what he created you to do, you will be amazed at what confidence that brings. I have seen some of the most meek and humble people in the world when they are doing the work of God transformed into a lion. They're bold for the zeal of the Lord. Look at what Jesus says after he reads from Isaiah. Verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now that sounds innocuous enough. Do you understand what Jesus was boldly declaring with that sentence? He was saying, I am he. I am this Messiah. I came to do those four things that he listed there 800 years ago. Now Jesus is speaking to his hometown and usually when you are invited to speak in your hometown, even as a pastor, you feel obliged to be sort of all shucks. And shuffle your feet and look down, but Jesus did not. I can tell you from personal experience, speaking to people you grew up with can be a nerve wracking thing because they know you, right? And, and as John MacArthur says, every expert is from out of town. 
That's what Jesus meant when he said a prophet has no honor in his own country. Jesus was not intimidated. I'll tell you a little story. The first sermon I ever preached, I was invited to preach in my grandmother's church. There were about 50 people there, 45 of whom I was related to. <laughs> and I prepared diligently, too diligently. If I had one page of notes, I had 30. And I approached the pulpit after I was introduced. It was a very small building, low ceiling. There were these air conditioner ducts, vents, right above the pulpit. And it was the heat of summer. And I suppose my body heat from nervousness set them off. And right as I opened my Bible and those page of notes there, the air condition turned on. And that blast of air blew those 30 pages of notes into the air. And about 29 of them landed under the communion tape. And I literally begged their pardon, got down on my hands and knees, had to reorganize my notes in order. And 10 minutes later, I started over again. That was embarrassing. I was nervous. Nervous as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs. We don't see that in Jesus. He was bold. He was confident. Now, we have to admit, Jesus had a, several advantages over me. One of which he's God, okay? And, and he, he, the other advantage he had in being God is he was sinless. He didn't have any memories of his own sin growing up for them to overcome. There, there was not a person in that room who could say, I remember when he told a lie. I remember when he got a paddling at school. I remember when he did this or that. They had those memories of me. They had to overcome that in order to give me an audience. Jesus didn't have to do that. And as God, Jesus knew their hearts, and so he knew exactly what to say to them, and he got right to the point. And that is our third point, is that when a person is full of or controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit, that person will have wisdom in their words. And Jesus did. Look at verse 23. Listen to what he said. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He knew what they were thinking. They didn't come to hear Jesus preach. They wanted to show. And they heard he could turn water into wine and they heard he could do this or that. And they wanted to see that. Do that. We've heard you've done that there. If that's really true, do it here among your people. Jesus never would give people a show for a show's sake, would he? He really got to, to the point of why he was there. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in the Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three and a half years. And a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now he was not only sticking a theological knife in them, he was twisting it. Here's what he was saying. He says, you all know the story of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a great and revered prophet. They all knew the story of Elijah. But they didn't like the entire story of Elijah. The reason Elijah had to come on the scene and pronounce a famine is because their forefathers were idolaters. They had accepted the gods of Baal. And rather than worshiping the true God, they were worshiping false gods. And by the way, those gods had been imported from the country of Sidon. And to make a point, God spared 
one family, a widow and her son from that famine by making sure they had flour and oil miraculously, continually. And it was a widow of Zarephath and Zarephath happened to be in the land of Sidon. What's his point? His point is that the way a person is saved is by humility to God, recognizing they're spiritually impoverished and calling upon Him for salvation. In case they didn't get the point, he gave them a, another example. This time, Elijah's, uh, the one that came after Elijah, Elisha, verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, but none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And I can imagine him stressing Syrian, because Syrians were the enemies of the people of God. They were Gentiles, they were pagans. You remember the story. There was leprosy that was rampant in that part of the world, which was a death sentence. Not only a death sentence, a very painful death sentence. And it included being ostracized socially because leprosy was so contagious. If you had leprosy, you had to go live by yourself out in a leper colony. And so here's this guy, Naaman, a Syrian, who's a very powerful, beloved man, a great and courageous general in the Syrian army. And it's found out that he has leprosy and he's devastated. Doesn't know what he's going to do. He doesn't know the God of Israel. But there's a little slave girl in his house who does. She's probably a prisoner of war from Israel. And she says, I, I know a man that can heal you. His name's Elisha. He's a man of God. He lives down where I come from. And so this man doesn't want to go because he's prideful. He never has had to have help from anybody, least of all an Israelite. But his wife says, what do you have to lose? And she convinces him and he gets in his chariots and he goes off with all these treasures thinking he can buy healing from this prophet. And he, and he comes to Elisha's house. Elisha won't even come out to meet him. He knows why he's there. And he sends out his servant to tell you, you gotta, you gotta bathe seven times in the river. And he goes to the river and it is polluted. It is ugly, smelly. He says, man, we've got beautiful crystal streams where I'm from. You want me to bathe in this filth? And he was prideful and he wouldn't do it. And finally he did. Seven times he, he felt so foolish. He knew it wasn't going to work. And the seventh time he came up, you know what the scripture says? His skin was like that of a newborn baby. And he went home healed. Why? Because there was some magic in that polluted water? No, because he humbled himself before God. That's Jesus' point. He's talking to people he grew up with. He says, look, I know you, you people. You, you think you're good. And compared to others, maybe you are. You're good neighbors. You're good friends. But you're sinners. You fall short of the glory of God. And you need salvation as much as a Syrian or a Sidonian. And you know how they responded to that? They hated him for it. Here's what happened. Look at verse um, 29. And they got up. I guess the picture. They're sitting in church. They get up from where they're sitting and they drove him out of the city. That's not in a car. They chased him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill where the city had been built in order to throw him down the hill. To kill him is the implication. Now these people wanted to see a miracle, didn't they? They wanted to see... Jesus do a magic show to entertain them. Well, they got a miracle that day, but it was not the one they imagined. 
Here's what happened while they were wanting to kill him, but passing through their midst, he went his way. I take from that in some supernatural way, Jesus sort of just disappeared. One moment they've got their hands on, the next minute he's gone. Now what, what's happening here? Now ultimately, these people and those like them got their wish. They killed Jesus, didn't they? On the cross. But only when it was time. Only in his sovereignty when he let them do that. They wanted to kill him right then and there, but uh, he had not fulfilled his mission yet. And so he passed out through their midst another way. Jesus knew the right buttons to, to reveal their true character, and so he did, and it made them furious. Now, now hear this. Remember what I said a moment ago? We should never offend a lost person through personal pride or arrogance. Agreed? But here's what we must realize. The clear teaching of the Word of God is by its nature offensive. And when we tell people that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, not all of them will like it. In fact, some of them will become very angry. Now, it's unlikely in our culture that uh, they're going to take us outside of town and try to kill us, but they might. We had a dear brother in Nepal who we've worked with for years, who just about a month ago was beaten nearly to death by peaceful Hindus who didn't like the fact that he was preaching that they were sinners in need of a Savior. It happens every day around the world. And probably the people of our culture are prevented from letting their anger go to that conclusion by fear of the law and its implications. But, but make no mistake, there are plenty of people in our culture who hate us. Who, who think it not only the epitome of foolishness that you would get up early on a Sunday morning together with other Christians to worship a Savior that they perceived to be dead 2,000 years ago. They hate us for it. And they hate the fact that we call them to repentance and faith. But you know, I heard Adrian Rogers say a long time ago, <laughs> I'd rather be hated for telling the truth than love for telling a lie. Wouldn't you? We have to tell the truth. Jesus told the truth and he knew how they would respond because he knew their hearts. And yet he told them anyway. He came back to Nazareth later on in his ministry and the scripture says he wondered. He was amazed at their unbelief. What a privilege these people had. For 30 years God himself dwelt among them and they didn't recognize him. They rejected him. They turned him away. And dear friends, we live in a culture today that has been given a lot of privileges. Not many people you know have never heard the name of Jesus. In fact, most people, even not professing to be Christians, have at least one copy of the entire revealed Word of God, the Holy Bible. And yet, we presume upon those privileges day after day, week after week, year after year. And the Bible says, to whom much is given, much will be required. And that's not only true at a corporate level. That is true of an individual level. There are people in this room, I'm convinced statistically, who have been in church all their lives. And they've heard the message of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone countless times. And yet they've turned it away. They've rejected. They have created a religion in their mind 
and created a God in their mind that they like better than the God revealed in Scripture. And they go through the accoutrements and they go through the motions of calling themselves a Christian and being around his people, but in the truth is they've never been born again. They're just like those people Jesus talked to. They're blind and poor and captive to their own sinfulness. But Jesus says, I have come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, Jesus was referring to the year of Jubilee. It doesn't mean a lot to us, but it meant a lot to Jewish people. Every seven years, according to Hebrew law, the slaves had to be freed and the land and its debts were forgiven. And so the year of Jubilee was a time of celebration. It sort of leveled the playing field for people. And it was a time of freedom and joy. And Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. But for a person to rejoice in their freedom, they have to know they were prisoners. So Jesus says to these people, look, you're the poor, you're the blind, you're the captive. I've come to proclaim good news to you. But instead of embracing him with joy, they stopped their ears and were blinded by their own rage and they tried to kill him. What about you, dear friend? What is your view of Jesus? Is he simply an admirable figure in history? See, maybe a prophet who was misunderstood. Maybe, maybe he was so misunderstood that he died, but what a, what a waste that was in your mind. No. Jesus is God. He came with a purpose, and that was to die in the place of sinners. And that purpose was accomplished at the very moment he decided to be accomplished. Not a minute sooner, not a minute later. And he is offering the same gift to you today that he offered these people in Nazareth. Repent and be saved. Will you receive it or will you reject? These people rejected it. There's no evidence that, not, that one person in that room accepted Jesus that day. Maybe later some of them did. We're not told. What about you? Today is the day of salvation. Will you call upon the name of the Lord? Will you ask him to forgive you for your years of rebellion? Will you acknowledge that he knows everything about you? We acknowledge that you are a spiritual pauper. You have nothing to offer him that he needs. He has everything you need. You come to him, as I said, with outturned pockets and empty hands on his terms and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. If you'll do that, he will hear your prayer. He'll forgive your sin. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. And you too can walk in the power of the Spirit just as he did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this episode in the life of Jesus, allowing us to just sit in on his sermon. Lord, what a powerful sermon it was. It was clear. He called people to recognize their own sinfulness. Father, I'm encouraged by the fact that uh, throngs didn't run to him. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, as far as we can tell, they all rejected it. Lord, that's a tragedy because you today offer that same free gift to anyone who would submit to your Lordship. Father, I pray that some in this room would learn the lessons of others and not turn away Jesus, but to receive him as Lord and Savior. Pray you'd call some today to saving faith. 
Father, I pray you would increase the boldness of every believer as we recognize we have the indwelling presence of the Spirit. And as we submit to the Spirit, moment by moment, decision by decision, Lord, we have the power of the Spirit working in and through us. Help us not to do your work in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Father, we're encouraged today as we see the boldness of Jesus, the conviction with which he taught, the wisdom that dropped from his lips. Use us in a similar way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.